This is Auntie Up, Indigenous women talking about important shit. Sago Buju, welcome back to our second season of Auntie Up, the podcast for, by, and about Indigenous women where we talk about important shit. Did you miss us? We missed you. I'm Kim Wheeler here on Treaty 1 Territory, Muddy Waters, Winnipeg, the heart of Turtle Island. Bonjour, I'm Jolene Banning here in Fort William First Nation, and I am so excited for another season, and I also miss this as well. We're kicking off season two, starting with our generational strengths and everything in between. Kim, what are you most excited to talk about this season? We have some great episodes lined up this season. We're going to be talking about midwives, decolonizing the media. We are going to be honoring our matriarchs. And I'm also looking forward to the defunding the police episode. That's going to be a really important conversation to have. And I think really hard because I don't think people understand exactly how much services we're missing out as everyday people from how much funding the police gets. And that money could be better spent elsewhere. Yeah, I don't think people understand that when we say defund the police, we don't mean like do away with everything. Perhaps put that money towards other services um, and not just for indigenous people, but for everybody. Mental health, housing, everything. Like it's, it's, it's all connected. <laughs> And we're going to be joined by Dr. Pam Palmiter for that episode. We've got some great guests for season two. Not only Dr. Pam Palmiter, but award-winning podcaster Connie Walker. That's exciting. And of course, we have our hosts that are returning. Christine Genier is going to be here. Your favorite cousin, Rosanna Deerchild. A rock star in my eyes. And um, Celeste Pedri Spade is coming back for season two. So is Stephanie Moses. And we just have a great lineup of aunties talking about important shit. Yeah, some really, really exciting topics. And I think topics that really show us in more than just um, raising issues, talking about important shit, also talking about hope giving us hope, instilling some hope and some pride in who we are. Like, great season lined up for season two. And speaking about hope and strength, Jolene, I'm going to throw it over to you to take us into our first episode about blood memory. When I'm thinking about our ancestors and future generations, I can't help but look at them when they're born and looking to see, do they have traits of mom? Do they have traits of dad? What will they be like when they grow up? And often, I mean, even myself included, when I grew up, I would hear stories like, oh, Jolene, she sure knows how to tell a story like her Uncle Bango. Meanwhile, like my Uncle Bango was my grandmother's brother and I'd never heard him tell a story in his life. I didn't I didn't know what was going on, but these were just the things that I would hear growing up or, or I look like my dad. Uh, so now we know enough about social determinants of health and we know as Indigenous people that we have a specific social determinants to death. But if we can pass down intergenerational trauma, then couldn't we also pass down intergenerational strength? I'm here with my co-host, Christine Genier, to talk about just that. 
And this is my first time co-hosting with Christine on Auntie Up, and so I'm so thrilled. It is good to see you. It's good to see everybody uh, on this a beautiful day where I'm uh, coming at you from what is now known as Whitehorse Yukon. Uh, Shirley Adamson. I am coming at you from the lands of the Tan Kwachan and the Kwanlin Dan, what is known uh, colonially as Whitehorse Yukon. And it has um, been on my mind a lot as well, this thing we call blood memory. And it, uh, it's been on my mind a lot since I've started working deeply in language. My mom and I work on uh, Tagish language revitalization. And we also work in Akwanje, which is also known um, by anthropologists as Southern Toshone. And it comes up a lot in, in our conversations and when we're delivering to other folks as well. One of the things that I came to, uh, to knowing is that I'm not teaching people what I tell them is I'm helping you to remember. This language is still inside of all of us and I'm not teaching you anything, but we have the memory of it. We're in a very fortunate position here in the far north, far west, where some of the distance between our languages being spoken every day and everywhere isn't as long. It's not as much of a time difference as we see on the rest of Turtle Island. So that memory, if it's if it's in fact a memory and not just our, uh, you know, what we did know in in our present childhoods, um, it's not that distant. So we're harnessing that privilege and we're tapping in to that memory and helping people remember what their languages are. And with that, today on Zenyu, we're going to talk about blood memory or bone memory from a couple of aunties doing the work that they're Gukums or Nitsuan did such such as tanning hide and making your own leather and how that work has transcended through their blood. Our guests today are learning and connecting through hide tanning and increasing access to traditional land-based practices. Our first guest is Kanina Terry. She's an Anishinaabe hide tanner from Laxville First Nation, and she works at hide tanning and maintaining a life connected to the land, uh, doing this work that her ancestors did, and now sharing this with her future uh, generations and future ancestors. So hello, Kanina. Oh, hello, Bujo, Christine, and Jolene, and the other guest. Well, oh, I won't say her name yet. <laughs> um, yeah, it's really nice to be here with you today. Thank you for having me. Really honored to be asked to be here. Well, then that would be my cue to introduce our other guest. We're speaking with Amber Sandy, an Anishinaabe artist, Hyde Tanner, coordinator of Indigenous Knowledge and Science Outreach for X University. And uh, no matter the size of your space, from urban balcony to a large yard, she works to increase access to traditional land-based practices like tanning fish skin. Welcome to Auntie Up, Amber. Miigwech. It's such an honor to be here and to, to share some of this. Um, 
It's wonderful to be a guest alongside Kanina because we've been kind of on this journey of uh, rec reclaiming our knowledge around high tanning together and being able to like support each other from afar virtually through social media. So it's really lovely to be here. Miigwech for having me. We are talking about blood memory today. And I just want to ask, like, this sort of goes to both of you, both of you women today. Did this impact your decision to learn how to tan hides? I wouldn't say it impacted my decision to learn how to tan hides. It's something I I really felt connected to. I, I recognized after I started tanning hides, but not yeah, it wasn't something I thought of before. I think in in my undergraduate um, studies, actually specifically with one of my teachers and mentors, Lee Miracle, I started learning about blood memory when I was in my undergraduate. And um, it's certainly something that has, I've carried forward with me in all of my practices. Um, so it's been a central theme to, to my high tanning work for sure. Uh, Kanina, you know, you had talked about how it didn't land on you really until after you had started uh, the process or was there a moment when you first realized that it was passed on to you intergenerationally that this memory had been passed along as well as, as the skill? I remember when I learned how to tan and work deer hides, it was at a high tanning workshop in Thunder Bay in 2017. And it was the first time I'd really worked with hides like that. Um, and I remember how easy a lot of the stuff came to me. And I felt like it was a, it was a workshop offered by a non-native woman. And there was a number of different participants and there was another indig indigenous woman with me and doing the workshop. And I, I really felt that the two of us were, I felt like we took different care with the hides than the other participants. And I, I felt like the work that I was, like the ways that I was able to work on the hide were, it, it seemed like it just, it was natural to me. And it was something that I felt, or it came easy. And that's when I started to think like, hey, this probably, well, I think this comes easier because it's something that's not that far in my, that's not that far in my past. What brought you to wanting to do hide work? If this isn't something that happened really, um, you know, in this lifetime, what, what drew you to this work in the first place? It was not really even anything I thought about doing before I saw that workshop. It was, uh, I was on Facebook one day and I saw an advertisement for this workshop being held in Thunder Bay. And I thought, hey, I could go to that. That'd be really cool. Uh, I've always really loved the smell of home tan leather. And I do create things, but not like not a lot. I'm not an active or very busy creator. Um, and I've always loved leather. Like I remember I have a bin of leather that I've carried with me in different places I've moved. It's And it's full of different types of leather, like, you know, black lamb leather, cow leather, probably deer and all this types. And I'll open it up once in a while and all different colors. So I really love the material of leather. So when I saw this workshop happening and I was able to go, I just went for it. And it's, it's kind of something that almost has taken over my life. So it really wasn't anything I, I thought about doing. And, but I'm so glad I'm doing it now. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. And I feel the same way when I smell homemade tan leather, right? It's just one of those scents that's so intoxicating and it just moves you and you just can't help but just feel something when you, when you smell that just everything seems to come alive and come awake and you're just like hearts in your eyes and, and in your nose. 
Um, when I think about sort of like our history as Indigenous people and where we're, where we've come from, I really try to like I, I really think about this lots this this blood memory and this bone memory because I really think about trying to pass that stuff down to my daughter to my granddaughter and Amber when you were when you were talking about going to school and listening to me Lee Miracle you said that you sort of tried to carry this forward how do you do that what's that look like I think um for me it's just been being aware that that exists in the first place um when I first learned about it I was learning about it in the sense of you know colonial trauma and learning about colonization and all of that stuff and it really, it was a hard thing for me because I struggled a lot studying Indigenous studies as an Indigenous student in undergraduate uh, program because I was learning about all of these histories, like these horrible things that happened and piecing together the reasons why my family is the way that it is or, you know, the struggles that we've had collectively and individually. Um, so knowing that and being able to hold that with me while I've been in this practice of hide tanning um, has just helped me be a little bit more aware of all of the gifts that these hides, no matter what it is that I'm working on, whether it's fish or deer or moose, all of the gifts and all of the things that these hides are teaching me. Um, and I just have that central in my mind, like opposite to Kanina's experience, hide tanning did not come to me easy. I actively seeked out um, a teacher because I started learning how to harvest and hunt about eight years ago. And a part of that journey, I really felt like I wanted to be able to utilize as much as I could from the animals that I was harvesting or that my friends and family are harvesting. And uh, in Southern Ontario specifically, and like my community, there was nobody doing this work. Um, so I ended up finding my hide mentor, Brenda Lee, at um, a beading symposium in Toronto. Um, randomly, she was teaching a quill work workshop and she handed out these little pieces of leather to everybody to work on. And it was like the most beautiful textile I'd ever touched before. I had no idea what it was. And I asked her and she said it was home tan deer hide. Like she didn't actually smoke it. It was unsmoked, so it was still white. Um, but it was just such a beautiful textile and it was such a gift for her to share that with all of us. And from that point forward, I asked if I could help her with her hides that summer and she's been my teacher ever since. But the first few times I would, I drove from Toronto up to um, Sturgeon Falls, which is about a four hour drive, four and a half hour drive. Uh, a bunch that summer to help her work on her hides. And I can remember the first time my first experience working on hides, she set me up, we got it strung up. She told me what to do, showed me what to do. And she's like, okay, you go ahead. I'm gonna go inside and take care of whatever else. And I just sat there like working away at this hide and going in my brain, like, why did you think you could do this? This is such hard physical work. And I cried, like I was so emotional and overcome with emotions. And I just kept working through that. And it gave me so much strength to just work through that, that hardship, but then also the sadness of the fact that I never got to learn these skills from my ancestors, you know, from my, my aunties or my grandma. So it hasn't been, for me, it's been the opposite. It's been like 
a very challenging practice to pick up, but in like the most beautiful way. Just recently in my own, in my own journey of remembering and reclaiming, I've been picking up activities that I've learned that my ancestors have done. And one of them is um, tapping the sugar bush on, on my reserve, Fort William First Nation. And this is something that my dad used to do as a, as a young, as a young boy. And um, I'm sure that my grandma did as well. And I think about that as well, when I'm doing this now as, as a grown woman, like it's almost, I feel like it's almost sad, like that I didn't get to learn this from the very beginning and also a lot of hard work. And I think about how strong and how much work our ancestors did. Like this is just a way of life. And it makes me think, um, like for me, like I recognize that hard work in, in sugar, in, in tapping maples and making maple syrup. And so it made me want to do that, to like try to connect with the memory. How do you recognize things that you want to do that are connected to memory of the work our ancestors have done? I, I really don't feel I had much not desire to to learn more until uh, I moved back out to my my where I, the home where I grew up outside of Sulacout, um, and that was five years ago. Um, and before then, I was living in town and just kind of happy to have a domesticated life in in a municipality, easy living. Um, but when I moved back out to my where I grew up, um, I I recognized I wanted a change that I didn't wasn't liking the life that I was living before. And Hyde's came to me just that summer after. And then with Hyde's came um, more food, like recognizing more and more of the foods knowledge that I don't have, like food when thinking of traditional foods and country food, food from the land. Um, and so that's another thing I've been really spending more time on reclaiming is, you know, how to cook uh, different types, types of meat. We've always harvested moose in the fall, my family. But there's, you know, there was lots of things we wouldn't utilize, like the hide, like the head, um, you know, knowing, not knowing, eating the moose nose, things like that, or the tongue. Those aren't things we would have kept. Um, my dad's a white guy, and he's really knowledgeable on the land, and he raised his family on the land, spending lots of time in the summers out on rivers and lakes on canoe trips. So I have a lot of knowledge of the land from him but I know it's not the knowledge that I would have had from my grandparents, my, my Anishinaabe grandparents. So I've been trying to look at uh, combining those two and learning more and more about what I would have had, the knowledge I would have had, had my mother not been removed from their home um, for residential school. And both of my grandparents passed before I was born. So I didn't even have a chance to learn from them um, as a young person. So yeah, food has been a big thing, food and, um, and hides. So I think you uh, bring up a really good point, uh, Kanina, the this differences, if you will, between uh, living on the land and being traditionally connected to this land from, from which we come uh, as Indigenous people. Um, the, the, the traditional connections and the, uh, the soul connections that we hold with the land that has fed us and taken care of us and helped us to survive relatively harsh conditions for time immemorial. 
um, there's a relationship that happens there that is so intertwined now with this knowledge that we're talking about. Um, I, I was very fortunate in that I was able to experience and live live fish camp culture, which is a, a really, you know, kind of a big deal to 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 my people here. Uh, and in the last um, 15 years or so, we've been voluntarily not uh, pulling salmon from the rivers because we're we're in pretty dire straits with that. However, uh, you know, about 10 years ago, I um, I had to leave our area, went down to Alaska, went to the Inside Passage and pulled some salmon there. And I was cleaning the salmon and I could see my hands interacting with this. And for a, for a moment, they weren't my hands. They were the hands of Emma, my mom. They were Emma's hands. They were my grandmother's hands. They were Emma's hands. They were my auntie's hands. And I just couldn't tell the difference between memories of experiences that happened in my life versus all of this that was being given to me in that. And it was bittersweet because it reminded me of what we're not able to do right now. would like to tell you about our sponsors as I share a No Indigenous History moment. Each week, the team of researchers and archivists at No History provides Antiap with little-known facts about Indigenous peoples, places, and things. So this moment is to highlight that Indigenous nations across Turtle Island have used oral history since time immemorial. Oral history stories was how our ancestors shared treaties long before settler arrival. Indigenous nations negotiated with one another far and wide, with many divides of language, ceremony, and protocols. During negotiations, the treaties and understandings of the land were shared by the delegated representatives. This was an important job, and it was always said precisely, whether they had five words or five thousand words. Some communities had tools to pass down and recall oral histories and events that were passed down generationally, such as wampum beads used to create the wampum belt. The wampum belt can be traced back to over a thousand years ago, found in indigenous communities across Turtle Island. It's considered a sacred piece of culture that deeply embeds spiritual meaning. The belt is to be read with both your eyes and your hands. Wampum belts were created to mark specific events or treaties, but were intended to be revisited and read annually by the keepers of the belts to renew intention between the parties and to keep the meaning of the belt alive among the bearers of the belt. The arrival of settlers with their colonial policies and laws aimed to assimilate indigenous communities and destroyed oral traditions. Policies like the Indian Act and Indian Residential Schools where speaking Indigenous languages was forbidden, cut off the oral transmission of history and culture at its root. Nowadays, Western culture pushes the idea of a verbal agreement as less valid than a written one, or a written history more credible than oral histories. No History, who brought you this most important factoid, is also a proud sponsor of Antiep, the podcast for, by, and about Indigenous women to talk about important shit. Visit www.nohistory.ca.
we're still holding on to the knowledge. There's much of this knowledge of interacting with the land that many of us are still holding on to, regardless of where we're at in this moment. Why is holding on to this traditional knowledge and passing it on and sharing this knowledge important in this conversation? It's really important for the future of our environment. The work that I do outside of high tanning or like traditional arts is in the sciences. And my focus has always been environmental science. And over my probably 15 years of doing this work with local First Nations communities here in Southern Ontario, I've witnessed a huge difference because of climate change um, and because of our growth and you know, adding more highways or making the highways bigger, all of that stuff. Uh, so my life has been impacted by that. And I know future lives are only going to continue to be more impacted by this. And I don't have kids myself, but I am an auntie. And so for me, when I think about my niece and nephew, I want them to have that relationship. And I want them to understand how important it is for us to hold hold our responsibility as humans here and care for this land and be caretakers so that the land can also take care of us. Um, over the years doing this work and being able to spend time in the bush, whether it's even just visiting a sugar bush or you know learning about harvesting birch bark, like that time that you spend with those other than human beings is so important and our relationships build off of them and we learn so much from them and that they help to carry our histories and our stories too. And um, there's just so much with those relationships that I think we'll need to continue relying on as we witness climate change continue to impact our communities more and more and further north. Um, so for me, that's, that's the biggest thing is just upholding that responsibility of building those relationships and being able to pass that on to future generations so that they are seeing us uphold our, our ends of those relationships and they're witnessing it. Like we're embodying this work that we didn't have an opportunity to maybe see our family members take on. Mm -hmm. And I think you raised a, a really good point too about connecting this work and this relationship and responsibility to the land and its connection to climate change. We lived in such good relationship with the land. And I think about Gitchigumi right beside me and how she's so hurting and polluted and had had so much dumped in it from the mill or wherever. But it's like before these things came, we were in such a good relationship with all of this, right? Like with the land and the hide from the, the moose, like you were saying earlier, Kanina, about using the food for it, using the head or, or the antlers, right? Like I see artists using all pieces, not just the leather, right? Like they're using the bone, they're making tools. I feel like hide work is more than just hide work or blood memory. Yeah. I, I'm gonna I want to chime into the Christine's question um, and I, I'm glad Amber brought up the, the connection to land and environment um, and when I think of hides I wonder that too like we have you know so much access to commercial leather and I wonder why like and I've pondered that too like why is it why is it important that we keep this skill like um, where I live in northern on, northwest Ontario 
we're connected to, uh, we have close relations with a lot of communities, OG Creek communities north of here. And they have still have so many people who are making items from leather, but the amount of people I see, or the amount of items I see made with hometown hide has almost gone to zero in, the, in this deck in this century. Um, I know in the 90s, I remember I used to hang out at the Friendship Center and they had a craft store um, there in the 80s and 90s and probably majority of the items that were sold there were made with hometown hide and now we don't see any items made with hometown hide like maybe, you know, 5% of stuff is made with hometown hide. So I wonder like why is this important that I do this and that I share this with my, with my son and my nieces and nephews, why is that important? And I think that it is because this is still a really valid and um, important way to process leather. Um, we could be shipping our hides off to commercial tanneries, but I think my understanding is that a lot of commercial tanneries use um, chemicals that might not be great for the environment where the stuff that we use, we, you know, we know what is going into those hides and we do them in ways that are respectful to the land. Um, and it is a really beautiful material that is used. And I don't see um, moccasins or mitts uh, going out of use. You know, I think those are things that we are still going to continue to use and want to wear and to have on our bodies. Uh, that's still important for us, isn't, you know, especially as we have shoes and can buy slippers at the store. We don't want those. We want to have moccasins on our feet. Uh, so that's for me just more why I like to keep working on hides and think it's important to be sharing this knowledge and maintaining it. So one of the things that, um, and it, it may well be my age as we come into this anti-range, right? You realize there's this line where you're like, somewhere along the lines, I went from receiving <laughs> the clan teachings and the knowledge to having to teach it. Um, I say having, I think for lack of a better word right now for, for, for having the opportunity to teach it. But there's these moments where you're, wait a minute, I'm the knowledge holder <laughs> in this, that I think uh, maybe at this age range for me, I'm still trying to get accustomed to a little bit. So you, you have this shift that happens and you become a new different link in this chain. What is the uh, one thing that you hope to pass on to future generations through your DNA, through your blood memory? One thing, that's tough. I mean, I think I'll probably just echo what I just said because this, this work has been all teaching me my responsibilities for relationships and upholding those responsibilities. Um, but that's what I want to pass down is just our teachings of relationships, relations to one another, relations to the land, relations to other than humans like it's just so important and it's so central in in all of our teachings um and I don't think I ever realized that though I knew how important it was to have good relationships with community and to uphold those responsibilities we take on as we spend time with elders and that kind of thing um and also by virtue of my work holding on to and maintaining relationships with community is really important. Um, I'm starting to realize how important it is to 
hold on to relationships with moose, for example. Like this has been the year of moose for me and I've been able to see them and be around them and be really close to them and spend time working on their hides and learn more about them. And same with birch bark um, and spending time there with them and building that relationship. Like I want, I want the future generations to see how important that is for all of us. I struggle with that one thing too, but a lot of it's the same is, um, but maintaining the connection to these, these really important skills that we had and that have kept us alive. Yeah. In these harsh environments, how did our ancestors do that? And I'd like to uh, continue my understanding of that and help my, the young people know those things too, and the skills that they would need for those, you know, to live in this environment in ways that are good for the environment too. How about you, Christine? What do you hope to pass on to your future generations through your DNA? Well, uh, Jolene, thank you for asking me. I, um, I, I think about this a lot. Uh, we're surrounded by some really amazing uh, people here in the Yukon. You know, I don't want to start naming anyone because someone's name will be left off of this list, but people doing great work with... Um, maintaining of a lot of our ways, uh, and a, um, either in language, in high tanning, in fish camp work, in, uh, in, in drumming, in singing, that the skill of it is not necessarily in question of whether or not that's going to be passed on. But one of the things that I always recognize is that when um, I'm seeing someone who's of the people take part in this work, it's not a hobby. It's not an academic pursuit. They are full body and soul in love with it. The, and I understand that feeling. I understand that feeling of coming into space where I can speak a koshe, where we can gather much in the way that we are now. And you just see this mutual admiration coming out and this, and, and there's no other words I can use to describe it, but you're in love. And that, that is what I look forward to seeing passed down through, through the generations, because the skills, given everyone I see around me in the communities here in Yukon, I'm not, I'm not as concerned about them as I might have been 20 years ago. I see that effort there, those skills will be passed on. But that love, that love, that's going to be what gets passed on, I think, through our blood and our DNA. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. What about you, Jolene? So I have two small, two small little grand uh, grandbabies, four and two years old, and it's um, it's a lot of hard work. But I I bring them up with me to the sugar bush ever like since they were babies. I've been bringing them up there, and I mean, at first it was really hard because they didn't want to get into the sleigh. But I thought this is important that they be here, that they see this, and the older they get, like I'm telling them. Like, this is why we're going up here. Here's the name of our mountain, Anemkiwaju. Here's what the tree gives us. Like, water is life. Like, we have to say miigwech for all we get. And I'm, I really want um, them to know that there's a relationship with the land. I want them to know that, they're a part, that they are a part of that. And I want them to know that, that this, is, this is who they come from. Like, people that were in relationship with the land. Because I want them to take care of this earth, like, is this the only one we have? And I don't think that um, you really care about the earth as much if you don't have that relationship with her. And 
I want to instill this from like a very, very young age that our, our, our water is a living being that our trees are living. They're giving us, they're giving us water right now. They're giving us birch bark to, to build our canoes, to build our homes. Like this, they're, they're always giving to us. So we have to give back. So now whenever my little girl sees litter on the ground, it's bad boys. Bad boys, grandma. Look, bad boys. And then she'll go and pick it up. <laughs> but I'm I'm slowly trying to instill this for her to know. I um I, I think a lot about the gratitude I have just even for this conversation because you know we talk about intergenerational trauma um, in our communities and outside of our communities as well. Uh, either in response to colonization, to uh, residential school, or just the experience um, of, of, well, yeah, of colonization throughout the years. Beyond that as well, even looking at, uh, you know, those of our relations who were part of the world wars and and how that impacts us. But alongside uh, that, we've also inherited this resilience, the intergenerational strength the absolute love of our culture, the love of our people. I don't see that going anywhere anytime soon. Mm -hmm. I also have gratitude because um, like you said, we've all experienced that violence for simply being who we are. And I don't think that we should always look to that. Like before you would, you would hear these are the issues, right? There's so many issues, right? Poverty, alcoholism, housing, da-da-da-da-da, issue after issue. But what about like all of our strength? What about all this? And and I know that that you don't see many um people using home home smoked hides to still make moccasins and mukluks, but I think that we're starting to rebuild this. Yeah. Kanina, you're offering some workshops now. How how what's been the response to sharing this knowledge that you're that you're you've gained people have been starting to hire me to offer just like presentations on high tanning and they're they're just like one or two hour talks where I have some some slides and I'll go over some processes um I think the ones I've done that other people have organized you know we've got some good attendance and lots of questions this past winter, I offered two, I called them frost scraping zooms, uh, where I outlined these steps that I use to work on hides in the winter, which is scraping the hides when they're frozen. Um, and that's a way that I'm understanding that a lot of the people in the area that I live um, and I come from would have worked on hides in the winter. They would, that's how, when they would have done a lot of the scraping was in the winter. And so I've been spending time do it learning that for myself and working and talking with people and learning from them how other people would have done it and i this winter i felt like hey i can share this i feel like i have enough experience and and can can speak confidently enough to my own experience and how it works for me to share it so i offered two zooms Um, one was an hour long and i definitely felt like that wasn't enough time there were more questions my slides went on for i tried to put a lot of detail into them Um, and so the second one I offered, it was a repeat um, with a few changes to the info and then more, more time for questions. And I had over 300 individual people sign up to attend those Zooms. Um, and I think I had the first Zoom, I had at max 150 people actually showed up into the Zoom. 
And so like that's for a certain type of hide work, right? And the second one, I think it was 50 people came. Um, so like I was blown away by by how many people you know said, oh hey, they saw it and it was free. So I think there wasn't anything, there wasn't any cost to attend. So people, a lot of people just signed up and if they made it, they made it. Um, so I was, yeah, blown away by the amount of people that show an interest and the amount of people that actually attended. And then again, by the amount of people that worked on hides after that and took what I shared and went outside and worked on hides this winter. It was amazing to see. Mm -hmm. So that went really well. That's my short answer. <laughs> it is really amazing to see this, like to see it in action. I've I've had the pleasure of, of watching you work for a little bit, Kanina, and I've been to one other hide camp just watching and it's, it's really interesting. Yeah, it's a lot of fun too. Hard work. Talking about this uh, intergenerational strength, how do each of you uh, see it manifesting and lifting you up in this work and in this life now? I have a story I want to share. Um, so my mom, uh, my mom's mom, she passed away when my mom was quite young. And so my mom doesn't have much memories of her working on doing, doing culture, you know, working and just doing the things that she would have done as an Anishinaabe Kwe. Um, but my eldest aunt does, because um, she's, she was, yeah, 15 years older than my mom or more. So my eldest aunt was a teenager when my mom was a baby. And so she has these really awesome memories of my, my, my Gokum working and the ways that she would be. So my aunt shared the story a few years ago of being out on the trap line in the winter uh, with uh, her. So she was her, my, my grandma was my aunt's stepmom. And so, and then, and then all of her, the, my grandma's kids, they were out on the, in the trap line. And I don't know if my mom was born then, um, but it was a harsh winter and my grandfather was out and he hadn't, you know, they were slowly running out of food and my my gokum just knew she had to feed these kids well her family right and so my aunt shared that my grandma went up into the rafters of their cabin that they were and they she pulled down a rawhide and she cooked that up and she boiled it and they they just drank the broth from the rawhide <laughs> and i'm just like um, that was the first time I'd ever heard that story. And I was blown away by this knowledge that my grandmother had. And that wasn't shared. That's so I've, I've only been learning these stories in the past five years. Um, and I know that my grandmother was a really good um, maker of like moose meat pemmican, of dried meat, dried uh, moose flakes. Um, so I think about, you know, I think about that a lot. And just the amount of knowledge and the amount of strength that my grandparents both had to, to live here and to be raising their kids here on the land as much as they could and when they had their kids. Uh, so, I, yeah, that's my story of intergenerational strength, and I friggin' love it. It's awesome. So I grew up off reserve and with my mom. So we would go back and visit as much as she could. She, she did a really good job of bringing us back. Um, and I remember spending time with my Nokomis as a young child, but she passed away probably when I was around 10. Um, and just, I remember being at her house full of kids, like full of us grandkids and my aunts and uncles all in this tiny little house. And we would all find a space and she would cook us all food and just 
knowing her life now and looking back and thinking about all of the kids she raised, whether they were hers or, you know, hers that she took in. Um, I just think of all of that strength and how much, how much that took for her to be able to do, especially on her own. Um, and then I think about my dad who, uh, went through um, the Indian day school program. He went to two different day schools and had a really traumatic experience. And these past two years have been um, kind of a time of healing for my family that we're still going through. Um, but to see the strength in him now, you know, confronting those things that he had pushed back for so long and to see all of us as a family building a different future, like watching, even my sister as a mother choose her parenting style that's so, so different than what the environments we grew up in. It's just beautiful. And I think, you know, we're born with this just innate strength that we have to have to get through a lot of the experiences we have as young people. But I carry that with me, you know, and I carry that strength from my dad. I carry that strength from my Nokomis and, um, I'm just so thankful for it too, because as much as those hardships were extremely difficult for my family, we wouldn't be who we are today without that. You know, we wouldn't be able to fight as much to find this knowledge and I wouldn't be able to force myself to work really hard on a hide and push myself through that pain and just to get past all of that. And every day I think of that and every day their strength carries me forward for sure so much strength from our ancestors it was like a common um thing that I would hear elders say all the time and I, I it never really clicked in my in my mind until just recently when we started talking and looking at this topic but I used to always hear elders say you walk with your ancestors or your ancestors walk with you mm -hmm. I would like I didn't know exactly what that meant at that time and as I come to learn more and experience more, I really feel like it's that knowing that we're still connected. And I feel like this is almost blood memory or bone memory. And I was thinking about another, another memory or a, a thought, and it was about that smell of fresh smoked leather. And when you buy jewelry and it's got that scent. And I wonder if, I've almost wondered if the reason why that's so intoxicating and so lovely is because um, this, this would have been where we were first wrapped with our tikkanogans or our moss bags. Right. And I, I remember having seeing pictures of me just like a little baby wrapped in one. Right. <laughs> and it's all, and it's been passed down from like throughout all my little cousins right up until probably the, the last little cousin was born. And now I'm not sure. I'm not sure where the bag ended up. But do you think that that's possibly blood memory that sent? I'm going to say yeah, Jolene, I, I was, um, I do a presentation with one of the groups I work with about high tanning. And one of my first slides in there was a picture of me and my son. And above it, I have a screen capture of a Facebook post I wrote in 2008 of like, I'm addicted to hometown hide, right? Like this was 2008. And it wasn't another nine years before I started working on hides. But like that smell, yeah, is so distinct. And I feel it's something um, as as Indigenous peoples, we it's so home to us. 
where other people I know when they smell it, they might think it's so strong and too, too smelly. You know, it's something that might, it doesn't elicit the same reaction as it does to us. So yeah, I would say it's a, it's a blood thing. <laughs> All of the sensory input that you are talking about, uh, it just keeps landing on me how earth-based all of this is the smells the tastes the texture everything just it connects me it connects me and i think it connects us as well so i don't know if we're just carrying the memories of our ancestors uh recent or distant i think that too how much are we carrying the blood and bone memory of of the earth of our planet and that it behooves us to take care of her because we're going to be, we'll feel it. We will, we will feel it. If we take care of her, we will feel it. If we don't. Oh, thanks for that. That's yeah. Thanks for that thought, Christine. I want to do stuff like this with purpose. I feel like this will be me carrying forward our blood memory. And uh, I think that this conversation today really helped, really helped give me that little, that little boost of strength that, that we're more than just our trauma. Oh, miigwech for having us here. Yeah, miigwech. It's been a pleasure. It's been really good chatting with everyone today. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I will carry this in my memory. Miigwech, guys. And thank you. So thank you for sharing. Thank you for sharing your stories, your accounts of blood and bone memory, and the work that everyone is doing here just to keep that uh, the love of it all going it's uh it's hard work but it comes easy i don't know how else to describe it it's hard work but it it comes easy and to remember as well that maybe we're not so much learning as students not like you would in a classroom but you're remembering what you already know and speaking of remembering (laughs) remember to follow and like us on the social media it's at anti up Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for tuning in. Please hit those share buttons. Let people know about the conversation. Show it. Hey, Hyundi. Hyundi, Sokosen. Sokosen, Edeni. Hey, everyone, take good care of yourselves. Anti Up is produced by Jolene Banning and Kim Wheeler. Our executive producer is Tanya Talaga. Our sponsors are No History and Anna Mickey. Anti Up is produced for Makwa Creative. 